Welcome to the fourth mini-sode of Real Footnotes. I'm Brian. And I'm Jeff. And the response to our last episode was a bit overwhelming. It, uh, we got a lot of new subscribers. We're at like 2,700 right now. and Wow, so we're pushing 3,000. Yeah, and it also provoked a lot of conversations. Some good, some bad. Yeah, we're getting good feedback on how to make this better, and we'll be making some changes in the near future. Okay, well, let's start by highlighting one particular Facebook comment that was actually left by one of our previous guests and our good friend, Chris Phillips. So Chris said, quote, hey, lads, loving the latest episode as ever, especially the fan death skit, dark. It was. It was. That was like <laughs> catcher in the rye dark. Anyway, so in the spirit of pushing your discussion forward, here are a few thoughts. And now I'm really glad that Chris offered these because he is clearly more qualified than I am to interview you about the Middle East. So he lists three main comments, and I'm going to paraphrase them because they're just a mouthful to read. So we're just done with phrasing, right? That's not a thing anymore. So here they are. And the first one is that he's a bit weary about using the term Sunni states to describe Saudi Arabia's immediate allies, specifically the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain and Egypt, because he says this conforms to a Saudi narrative that they are the guardians of Sunniism against the evil Shia Iran. When in reality, a lot of the Sunni-majority Middle Eastern states do not actually fall neatly into this camp, such as Turkey, Qatar, and Algeria. So basically what I think he's saying there is that the bifurcation of the Muslim world into Shia and Sunni, with Iran being one pole and Saudi Arabia being the other, is a little too simplistic. It's more complicated. Yeah, the sectarianization of the Middle East. Right. Fair point. He absolutely schooled us on that one. And I know this is a bit of a bullshit cop-out, but this was a product of editing. I was looking at ways to shorten the episode and said that, you know, the Sunni states would be easier to kind of just throw that out there as opposed to listing them all off. Right. But I, even though I did know that this was going to be a gross example of reductionism. Yeah, it was pretty disgusting. Yeah, very disgusting. <laughs> but Chris knows that I'm pretty familiar with the fault lines of the Middle East, but sometimes we'll have to overgeneralize just for the sake of brevity. Right. Yeah, we need to move forward. All right. So here's Chris's second point. Chris doesn't buy the argument that Republicans are more pro-Israel than Democrats. He says that Obama was probably the most anti-Israeli president in recent history. But after that, he would rank it two Republicans right below. H.W. Bush, who forced Israel uh, to the conference in Madrid in 1991 by withholding loan guarantees. And Ike, or Dwight D. Eisenhower, who forced Israel's withdrawal from the Suez in 1956. Furthermore, two Democratic presidents have been among the most pro-Israel, LBJ and Clinton. Uh, so Chris then reminds us that we need to follow our own advice and look beyond just the veto data. Perhaps because the Democrats are more pro-multilateralism than the Republicans, they've headed off criticism of Israel before it needs to be vetoed. But he points out that that doesn't necessarily make them any less pro-Israel. Response? Okay, again, great point. <laughs> totally valid. Chris is just taking us to school. Yeah, I mean, he, he absolutely nailed that. But I would also add the famous anti-Semite, Richard Nixon, oh, to the pro-Israel camp with LBJ and Clinton. I mean, like, he was very pro-Israel. He did a lot of vetoes as well. Well, how, I mean, this is going to sound, I, I don't want this to sound how I know it's going to, but was any of Henry Kissinger's influence involved in that decision? Probably quite a bit. I mean, I know he's Jewish, but he's also was a he was an important member of the Nixon cabinet, right, or the Nixon administration. So I know I don't want it to come off as saying like he's Jewish, he must be. For, right? <laughs> he's but, got Jewish friends. He can't be anti-Semitic, <laughs> but he was. <laughs> no, no, no I, I don't. I don't account for Richard. That's not what I meant. I don't mean it mitigates Richard Nixon's anti-Semitism. But what I meant is his pro-Israel stance could have been influenced by Kissinger, who, in addition to being Jewish, is also pro-Israel. I think that's clear. 
Yeah, I think it was more to do with Israel's kind of pro-Western outlook and it being an ally in the Middle East and there's there's plenty of reasons why why Nixon supported it. But anyways, okay. All right. but another okay. another point is uh, I agree with him about George H. W. Bush and the administration. Uh, it had a very fraught relationship with the Israeli government of Yitzhak Shamir, whose hardline approach to governing makes Netanyahu look like a dove. Is that true? So, really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He, he was he was dove and Netanyahu don't go in the same sentence very often. Yeah. So. The problem, again, is that as much as I'd love to, we couldn't possibly go through the history of U.S.-Israeli relations from Truman to Trump in just one hour. That'd be like a full 13-episode season or a book. Right, 13 episodes, one for each president. Yeah, it's not actually that bad of an idea. And I'd happily produce a miniseries on that if someone wants to (laughs) just uh, reach out to us. (laughs) Okay, one one podcast at a time, Brian. Okay, so here's Chris's final point. He asks... Did you look at who was putting forward these anti-Israel resolutions? It strikes him that recently, states like Venezuela and Iran often criticize Israel at the Security Council just to embarrass the U.S. into vetoing, not because they actually expect that Israel is going to change their behavior. He says that this adds a new spin to the veto story because the close cooperation between the U.S. and Israel at the Security Council is basically taken for granted, so Washington's enemies can use Israel to attack it. Wow. Uh, Again, another amazing point. And that's why they pay you a lot of decreasingly valuable (laughs) British pounds. That's just mean, Brad. (laughs) Leave Brexit out of this. Yeah, but good point. (laughs) It is certainly something that I would strongly recommend someone diving into. And if they do, email us realfootnotes at gmail.com because we'd love to bring you on the show to discuss it in one of our mini episodes. I love how we just keep assigning people work. (laughs) Hey, if they'll take it and it makes the show better, that's I'm all about that. All right, so let's move on to iTunes reviews. This is the second thing we do in our mini episodes. We'll read out any review, any and all five-star reviews, that is. So keep them coming in. Also remember to pick a unique username because we've had some issues with that. It won't get posted if it's not a totally unique name. So just jumble up the alphanumeric stuff. Okay, so the first one is titled, Did You Know? And it's by Denmark from Peckham from the UK. They say, your life will be more interesting with real footnotes in it, which I suppose is the biggest compliment I can pay the guys. You can hear the passion and curiosity they have about life and the world, which makes them great storytellers and a very entertaining listen. And Brian Jeff tell you stories that will have you saying, did you know to someone not long afterwards? Love it, love it, love it. Great. I love the the emphasis at the end. Very nice. So the second one is titled Fascinating by Cap'n Gino Mafook Mafook from Canada. I'm pretty sure that's Cap'n Gino McFuck. (laughs) Oh, right. Okay. Well, uh, they say, awesome little podcast, little, L-I-L apostrophe, nice, uh, from two historians who really know their stuff. Gives you tons of great insight into little known history and cultural oddities. Recommended. So, nice one. The funny thing is they did it the first time, but not the second time. It should have been Lil No. <laughs> oh, yeah. Lil, like, Lil Known. Like, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's my rap name. Little Known. Lil Known. <laughs> DJ Little Known. <laughs> DJ Little Known. Anyways, so the last one is titled Entertained, Offended, Subscribed. Nice. 
I like that title. It's exclamation point too. Yeah. By Jacko Whiskey, 1982. And that's also from Canada. 1982 is a good year for Burgundy wine. I don't know about whiskey. Anyways, they say, fresh podcast by two academics unable to pronounce anything correctly. True. Who seem to be (laughs) trying to overcome their Western biases in hilarious fashion. It's awesome to see podcasters conclude an episode by acknowledging the whole premise of the episode was probably because of political bias confirmation. I was especially entertained by Brian trying to keep Jeff from going off the rails on the Israel topic. (laughs) My one bone to pick, and he quotes a line from the episode. This administration seems to be giving rhetorical aid and comfort to neo-Nazis and overt anti-Semites. Please back this statement up because to me, it appears you are perpetuating a false narrative. Well, I don't know about a false narrative. I mean, I qualified the phrase aid and comfort with the word rhetorical, which seems pretty fair to me. And Trump actually reiterated his both sides equivalency just this week for like the third time, right? Yep. But okay, maybe the evidence is still too narrow to make a definitive judgment. Instead, maybe we could just say that he has a diverse coalition that happens to include both pro-Israel Jews and neo-Nazis. But also disenfranchised white workers and the so-called deplorables. Well, I mean, white is just taken for granted. His whole coalition is basically white. But anyway, since our episode dropped, there's actually been a couple of other developments that underscore this strange juxtaposition of pro-Israel anti-Semitism. For example, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's son, Yair, shared an anti-Semitic meme on Facebook and was immediately condemned by the Anti-Defamation League. And then he quickly took down the post, but not before neo-Nazis noticed it in the United States, who, of course, absolutely loved it, right? For instance, Andrew Anglin, some piece of shit who writes for the explicitly neo-Nazi website, The Daily Stormer, he said, quote, Yair Netanyahu is a total bro. Next, he's going to call for gassings. Jesus Christ. Which is beyond despicable. Of course, this is absolutely outrageous. And it prompted Ehud Barak, a former Israeli prime minister and Netanyahu's chief political rival, to tweet, quote, Is this what the kid hears at home? Is it genetics or a spontaneous mental illness? It doesn't matter. In any case, we should fund his psychiatrist instead of security guards and a driver. Holy shit, he's basically calling both of them insane. Yeah, and this wouldn't play in U.S. politics, especially with regard to Israel. What do you mean by that? Wait, what do you mean it wouldn't play in U.S. politics, especially with regard to Israel? Oh, if any U.S. politician said that about Netanyahu? Oh, I see what you're saying. You're saying that the internal politics is permissible, but it wouldn't be permissible for a U.S. politician to say that? Exactly. And part of the problem is that in the aftermath of the Charlottesville attack, Netanyahu delayed his response by three days, tweeting a vague condemnation that avoided criticizing Trump's equivocation, saying that he was, quote, outraged by expressions of anti-Semitism, neo-Nazism, and racism. Everyone should oppose this hatred. Yeah, that's pretty clear, right? That's a condemnation, I think. Yeah. Okay, but he then added, this man, meaning Trump, is a great friend of the Jewish people and the state of Israel. Of course, we're not saying that Yair and Benjamin Netanyahu are actually anti-Semitic, but it's certainly strange. And I actually read a really thoughtful response by Shmuel Rosner. I probably said that wrong. I'm sorry, Shmuel. Shmuel. He's a contributing op-ed writer for the New York Times, and he wrote an article called What Anti-Semitism in America Looks Like from Israel. Now, Rosner argues that, the, that these two Jewish communities basically talk past each other on the issue of anti-Semitism. Israelis, who are primarily drawn from European Jewish communities, see anti-Semitism as a historical phenomenon that culminated in the Holocaust 
Holocaust, and they view Israel's right of return policy as a kind of safety valve for the persecution of Jewish peoples abroad. And Israelis tend to be more concerned with what they see as anti-Israeli sentiment on the political left. Like the politically insurgent and increasingly popular boycott, divest, and sanction movement. I guess you could say all those lefties are into the BDSM. Oh, <laughs> oh God. Okay. So... <laughs> Uh, Israelis now, for the most part, tend to be less concerned with resurgent Nazism on the right. Yeah, that's because they feel secure. Nazis aren't going to march into Tel Aviv and hold protests, right? Highly unlikely. Israel's primary security concern is with terrorism, not American neo-Nazis. Right. Well, also there's an issue here of national interest, which we discussed last episode with John Hunt. The need for good relations with the Trump administration outweighs any concern about his flirtation with anti-Semitism. On the other hand, Rosner points out that the American Jewish community is more concerned with that immediate prospect of domestic anti-Semitism in the United States. And the argument that Israel could be a safe haven for American Jews just doesn't really help them here at home. So this actually may be a case of national interest trumping ethno-religious solidarity. In any case, all of this still seems quite a bit paradoxical. Well, speaking of paradoxes, our upcoming episode is actually called Paradox Cycle. And it involves a Jew. Oh! Whoa, what? Whoa, whoa, whoa come whoa. on, man. You can't say things like that. I don't know yeah. what I said. What did you I say? You dropped a hard J. Huh? Yes. Yeah. Jew? You guys said it. <laughs> but so far, all true. <laughs> it is actually true. <laughs> and it comes from a footnote from Jeff's research into hydroelectric dams in the American South. I know that sounds <laughs> random as hell, but like, trust us, it, it does make sense. Very specific. <laughs> so I was doing some research about the Wilson Dam at Muscle Shoals, Alabama, which was a large hydroelectric dam authorized during the First World War. And as I was going through the records, I discovered that the power it was designed to generate was actually destined for factories that produce nitrates. Now, that might sound totally boring, and you're likely asking yourself, what the fuck are nitrates? Aren't they in cured meats? In some they are. I mean, sometimes you see the packaging, nitrate-free or with nitrates. But it actually reminded me of a very complicated story about a German chemist named Fritz Auber. Now, if you haven't heard of him, in 1918, Fritz Auber won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry for his method of synthetically fixing nitrogen. When Jeff first pitched this story, I'd never heard of Fritz Auber or nitrogen fixation. They seem like foreign words to me. Foreign <laughs> words. I think almost all words are foreign, Brian. Every word is. But as Jeff told me the story, I became obsessed with nitrates and Fritz Auber because this paradoxical figure discovered a way to turn the air that we breathe into bread and war. He irrevocably changed the world for both better and for worse. And next episode, we're going to tell his story. So check your podcast feed on October 2nd, and we'll see you then in the margin. Like a boy.